The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, it's been over a year and a half since the killing of Ahmad Arbery, a story that has captured worldwide attention. So with just days to go until jury selection for the trial of Travis and Greg McMichael and William Roddy Bryan, we're going to take a look back at how this story began and key moments that have occurred in court since then. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinnie Politan. Welcome to the Court TV Podcast, and thank you so much for downloading. I'm Vinnie Politan, and this week on the podcast, um, we're going to get you ready for a really big case, a big trial that Court TV will be covering with our cameras inside the courtroom. It's the shooting death of Ahmad Arbery. And this is something that happened a few months before the death of George Floyd. And, and it created um, a, a lot of controversy in the way the case proceeded. And then George Floyd was murdered. And this case sort of took a back seat for a little while. Uh, but now it'll be back on the front burner. And for those of you who don't recall what this case is, this is the case of Ahmad Arbery, a young man who was jogging through a neighborhood in Brunswick, Georgia. The neighborhood is Satilla Shores, was jogging through that neighborhood, ends up getting chased by three men in two pickups and ends up shot and killed. And now those three men are on trial for his murder. So there's a lot to get to to get you ready for this trial. And I want to bring in Court TV anchor Ted Rollins. And uh, Ted, I wanted to make sure that you were here for this um, episode of the podcast, because I think it's important to me, this whole story begins and is about a neighborhood. And I haven't been there. You have. Set the, paint the picture for us, set the table here, describe this part of, of Georgia, whether it's Brunswick, the subdivision where this happened, um, you were there. How would you describe it? And, and, and what was the sort of the vibe that you got when you went down there? The neighborhood is in Brunswick, Georgia. This is southern Georgia. So this has a long, obviously, history that um, ha has some some black marks on it, you know, some, some controversy. This was, a, this was an area of the country that was part of, you know, all in on plantations and slavery. And so there's a, an undercurrent of that, but what Satilla Shores is, is a very unique excluded neighborhood from the rest of the city so you you're it's right off of a highway you enter into the neighborhood and you're there and there are maybe upwards of 75 100 homes tops uh, maybe a little less but that's you're in this neighborhood you're in this neighborhood there's a, a very busy highway that um you have to cross to get in if you're not there for a purpose you likely aren't going to find yourself there you're not going to take a wrong turn and end up in satilla shores but once you're in, it is a, basically a circle with several different options um, winding around with the highway on one side. And on the other side, you have water. 
So it really, it's confined. And that is part of the story here because Maude Arbery found himself in this confined space when this incident took place. Yes, it's the Deep South, um, but also I think on many levels more importantly, um, this is a confined neighborhood and, and that neighborhood mentality of who's a, the stranger where maybe you don't have that in other types of neighborhoods. That was definitely there. The vibe, I couldn't have found the people that we interacted with more pleasant. It, this was not a confined racist neighborhood. Um, this was a, just a confined neighborhood that is in the South. Now, the McMichaels and Roddy Ryan, that, that, that's a different story, but the people that I met, interacted with, they were a bit leery of the media and strangers, but they were absolutely good people. And to a person, they were disgusted with, with what happened to Ahmaud Arbery. Is this a gated neighborhood? Do you, do you, I mean, is it only the residents who are allowed in or is it an open neighborhood where you can drive in? It is not gated. Um, however, because of the highway and the water behind it, the river, the Satilla River, um, it might, it's mother nature gated in, in a way, in a strange way. Um, but no, you can, if, if you desire to go in that neighborhood or you're from around there, absolutely, there's no gate. All right. I want to play for folks, the district attorney describing the way they see this case, the way they see what happened to Ahmaud Arbery at the hands of Greg McMichael, his son, Travis McMichael, and their neighbor, William Roddy Bryan. Let's take a listen. On February the 23rd of 2020, victim Ahmaud Arbery was chased, hunted down, and ultimately executed at the hands of these men. He was on a run on a public roadway in a public subdivision. He was defenseless and he was unarmed. Arbery, the evidence has shown, was shot down, unarmed in broad daylight in this quiet neighborhood. And literally, the video shows that the blood of that man is on two of these defendants' hands. Okay. Ted Rollins, let me ask you, uh, break it down for us, and, and piece by piece for people, what exactly transpires? How do we end up with Ahmad Arbery running away from three men in two pickup trucks. Ahmad Arbery is in the Satilla Shores. It is clear through surveillance video that he stops at a house that's under construction. This house had been the talk of the neighborhood that people had been coming and looking at it. And the owner of the house didn't live there in the area, but he had these cameras set up that he was alerted when anybody would go in there. And so there was some buzz in the neighborhood that, hey, there's some trespassers going into Larry English's home under construction. Maude Arbery finds himself there. He's walking, running through the neighborhood, stops, and you can see this all on video, at the house under construction. He looks around for a little bit, then walks out of the house and starts running up the street. He passes Greg McMichael and Travis McMichael's home on the same side of the street. Greg is outside. He's cleaning his cushions for his boat, and he sees Ahmaud Arbery run by, and immediately his gut reaction is, Travis, get your gun. We're going to go get this guy. He's the guy we've been looking for in our neighborhood. And he says, stop. Ahmaud Arbery does not stop. He doesn't know who Greg McMichael is. Travis comes barreling out of the house with his shotgun. Greg has his, um, his uh, handgun with him. They jump into 
the McMichael pickup and start to pursue Ahmad Arbery. Ahmad Arbery and the McMichaels now play this game of chase down the street, and they run. He Arbery runs by William Roddy Bryan's house. Well, William, he's out there in his front yard, and he sees his neighbors chasing a guy. He decides he's going to get in his pickup truck as well. Now you have two pickup trucks and Ahmad Arbery going through this circular almost maze inside this bubble of a neighborhood. There's no easy way out to get out of this neighborhood. There's no easy access. So eventually, Ahmad Arbery, after being pinned between the cars at one point, the trucks, um, he makes one loop around. And when he gets to the end, he finds the McMichaels are there waiting for him in the pickup truck. Travis in the driver's seat, Greg in the back of the bed of the truck. As Ahmad Arbery approaches the truck, he veers to the right to seemingly run around it. At that instant, Travis comes around to meet him in the front. And that is where Ahmad Arbery lunges at Travis McMichael, who has the shotgun in his hand. And boom, Ahmad Arbery is shot and killed after three times. Uh, Greg McMichael discharges weapon three times and Ahmad Arbery lay on the street bleeding and, and dying. And, and the most heartbreaking part of this, according to William Roddy Bryant, when that last f- shot was fired, Travis McMichael uttered two horrible words. He said a swear word, and then a racial epithet. That likely was the two last words that Ahmad Arbery ever heard on the face of the surf. Now, as they're chasing Ahmad Arbery around the neighborhood, are they shooting at him? No. Is, is, are they, are there, are there, is there any communication back and forth? Do we have any idea if they're yelling something to him, if Ahmad Arbery is yelling something back? Is there any sort of back and forth during this whole thing? Or is it someone's running and there's people in a truck and, and, and there's no rhyme or reason or explanation for what's happening at that moment. So McMichaels say specifically, Greg, that we said, stop, Howard, stop. And he wouldn't stop. So we chased him. That is all we know. We don't know if Ahmad Arbery communicated. We don't know what was going through his mind. Did he know why he was being chased by these two pickup trucks? He definitely knew he was being chased. That's clear on the video, but he, we don't know what, they said or what he comprehended. William Roddy Bryant, by the way, as a side note, he's the reason that we're here at this juncture because at some point he gets out his camera and starts to take video. He has that now widely seen video of the shooting of a modern. Now, is there any explanation for the McMichaels? They're saying, stop, stop. Are they telling him why they want him to stop? Have they indicated that i mean you're running through a neighborhood men in pickups are following you and telling you to stop i i don't know if i would stop ted um you know why would you stop if there's people chasing you and for for no reason is there an explanation from mcmichael stop i i need to ask you a question or stop is there anything like that um, do, from the McMichaels, have they said that, hey, we're, we're trying to tell them, you know, what's going on here? Is there any evidence or indication of that yet? It's only their word that they were imploring him to stop, that they just wanted to talk to him. And in their mind, what they were doing was trying to solve the trespassers at the English home. And Travis claims he had a gun stolen out of his 
his vehicle at one point. They are looking at Ahmad Arbery as a criminal, and they want to stop and talk to him. Did they call 911? No. They got in their pickup with their guns. And if Ahmad Arbery saw that shotgun, that adds a whole other element to it. Yeah, to your point, am I going to stop if some dudes in a pickup truck with a shotgun are chasing me? Probably not. Likely not. I mean, it, it's bizarre behavior, middle of the day. So let's let, let's let's talk about what was happening in the neighborhood beforehand to to try to understand. And it's not to um, excuse, but to understand the motivation. Right. Because when I'm, when I'm a prosecutor and I'm trying to case uh, motive is always a big part of of the case. And it's what's motivating the actions of this criminal defendant. So. For the McMichaels, what's going on in that neighborhood that makes them believe that this man who they see running through the neighborhood is some sort of a criminal that they need to apprehend? The neighborhood is a tight-knit community. It's closed in, and there were reports going on on the neighborhood Facebook page or the next-door page, whatever they had their communication, that there were these trespassers at the English home. So... Greg McMichael, just keep in mind, he's former law enforcement and investigator with DA's office. He's going to be the hero that's going to solve the mystery. He's going to solve this incident. They're neighborhood heroes to be. While they're driving, this is their mentality, as they're driving through the neighborhood, chasing them out, Arbery, they are going to solve this problem for their neighbors. They're going to get this guy, and everyone's going to thank the McMichaels for their service. Rodney Bryan, on the other hand, he just sees the McMichaels chasing somebody, and his instinct is, help my neighbors, chase down this person, no questions asked. So let's get back to what the big crime wave in the neighborhood was. So there's a house under construction, and people are walking in and looking at a house under construction. Now, let me let me just be on the record, because I want to be completely transparent here, Ted Rollins. Um find me guilty <laughs> and my wife as co-conspirators. How many times have we walked through neighborhoods and walked through homes under construction? It's we've done it countless times. We've done it uh, down in, in Georgia. We did it in New Jersey. I mean, I, I never really thought about it as trespassing, um, but I, I, I never went there with a, with a, with a mindset that I was doing something wrong or had the intent to do something wrong. It was curiosity. I wanted to see, Oh, wow, this is a nice house. Maybe we should buy it. Or maybe this is something that we could build in our house someday. So is, is that the extent of it that there's someone walking through a house Were things being stolen from this house Were or was, 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 was it turning into like a crack den or something? What is going on? Is it just people walking through a house under construction, Ted? Exactly. Larry English, the owner of that house, again, he didn't live there, but he had these cameras that recorded and alerted him. And he shared this video with his neighbors. And you look at the video, there's a a couple that walks in, looks around. There are several different people that over the weeks and months, and this was a long construction scenario. So this is a very open house. 
Um, and yes, there's a HDTV, there's a whole network, television network built on this, of building houses and the interest of it. And the, okay, you go, when you see one of those houses, the, the, it's just the studs, you you play the game. Oh, there's the, ki- yeah, yeah, there's the kitchen because there's the, yeah, okay. And that, I bet that's the, of course, it's natural curiosity. Nothing was ever stolen. The only thing reported stolen was a, a gun, a firearm that Travis says was stolen New Year's Eve in his driveway. Not at the English property. Okay, okay. So Travis has a gun stolen from his truck? Correct. And the mentality okay. is that it might be wait, that, wait, 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 that wait. the I'm, person I'm, is looking at the English house might have also stolen his gun. Maybe. That's, you see, that's the leap. See, that's the leap inside this mind, right? Now you've, you've taken us there, Ted. You've taken us into Travis McMichael's head. I was the victim of a crime. Somebody stole a gun out of my truck. Number one, why'd you leave the gun in the truck? Right? That's that's not responsible gun ownership, by the way. Um, yeah, I don't think you're supposed to do that. Um, but he, so he's a victim of a crime. So he sees someone walking through a house under construction, and 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 his logical conclusion is someone walking through a house in, under construction is the person who stole the gun from my car. There is a crime wave in Satilla Shores that we must bring to an end. Yes. And the person that they've seen on the camera from the English house, the, the one reoccurring individual that comes and checks it out and leaves, comes and leaves, never takes anything, is a black man. In running shorts and sneakers. This is also another major component of this trauma matter or how you think about um, the evidence, this is something that is going to be front and center for this jury, whether it's presented that way or if it is just going to be flowing through that courtroom. So let me ask you about Ahmad Arbery. Why is he running through that neighborhood and why is he walking through that house? Does anyone, will anyone be able to answer that question? Because obviously Ahmad can't because he was shot and killed. Um, and again, I'll, I'll, I'll if a per, for me, when I go for my walks, I don't do runs right now. Um, I'm, I'm just out of that phase for just a little bit, Ted. Um, but as I do my walks, I kind of go to the same, same routine all the time. Is Ahmad Arbery jogging through this neighborhood regularly? Um, is he walking through that house regularly? Does he walk through the house every time he jogs through the neighborhood? Um, do they have a hose with running water in that house? These are questions I have. Do you have any answers? The family says that Ahmad Arbery has been running and walking for years. He felt comfort. He had some mental health issues at some points growing up in his adolescence and, and, and as an early adult. So running has been very established in Ahmad Arbery's life by multiple people. The video camera that the defense is trying to use to their advantage, the, the video of the, at the English house that, that shows Ahmad Arbery there on frequent occasions, also is proof that he, to your point, was doing this on uh, several occasions. And Ahmad Arbery lived in a neighborhood across that busy freeway on the other side. We went from his house to Satilla Shores and traced his steps. It is an absolute um, uh, possible reoccurring trip for someone who is a runner. It is within two miles. It is not, in, you know, it's not like he lived 30 miles away or 15. It, it, 
he was doing this. He was absolutely doing this on other occasions. And the video proves it because there he is on two, at least two separate occasions, never steals anything at that English house. So this was something he did. Okay, we've got some more stuff to cover here on the podcast as we get you ready for the next big, big trial on court TV. And when we come back, let's talk about what the defense is is going to present to this jury, what the defense is going to argue. You have three defendants. Only one of them shot and killed Ahmaud Arbery. Uh, there's two other ones. So what is the, the, the theory and what is the defense that they'll have? And is there a different way to look at these three defendants? We'll talk about that when we come back. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front-row seat to justice. So in the case involving the shooting death of Ahmaud Arbery, three men are facing murder charges. One of them, Travis McMichael, shot and killed Ahmad Arbery. He's the one that had the shotgun in his hand. Um, the other defendant is his father, Greg McMichael, who is standing on the back of the pickup as the shooting is taking place. He also has a gun, does not fire it. He also has a phone uh, and was, was on the line with police. And then there's a third defendant, uh, Roddy Bryant, who is a neighbor of the McMichaels. I don't think they were great friends, but he was a neighbor. He was in the other pickup, and he does not have a gun, but he's the one with the cell phone who is recording everything that is happening and taking part in this chase. So um, let's break this down a little bit. And Ted Rollins, Court TV anchor, is with us. Uh, for Travis McMichael, there's only one defense available, and it's pretty obvious what it's going to be. It's going to be self-defense. I mean, that's his case. He he is going to argue that um, it was Ahmad Arbery who made the move on him and went after him and went for his gun. And we've been talking about a video, the actual moment that Greg, that Travis McMichael and Ahmad Arbery come face to face in front of that pickup truck is the part of the video you don't see because the pickup truck sort of obscures it. You see some feet, but you don't see a lot. You see some shadows under the car if you break it down frame by frame. But it's not 100% clear, Ted, exactly where the gun is pointed and who approaches who and who puts hands on who first. Yes, but you could make the argument, and that's the argument they're making, um, that it was a Arbery that lunged towards Travis just because of where they met. They met on the Travis's side, on the driver's side. So Ahmad Arbery had to have come across for them to meet there. The issue here is the defense wants the jury and wants all of us to just analyze those two seconds. Look at this. See how Ahmad Arbery comes over? Well, how about you take the entire video into context of the entire chase and the entire story into context? Now, those last two seconds was Ahmad Arbery, it can be argued, was acting in self-defense when he lunged at uh, the man who was holding a shotgun who had been chasing him around this neighborhood. Yeah, this is fascinating because for the defense, as you said, Ted, uh, 
It's all about those two seconds in front of the pickup truck. What exactly happens? When does this physical confrontation take place? And their argument is going to be that Travis McMichael is not pointing the gun at Ahmad Arbery, but is holding the gun. And then Ahmad Arbery goes after Travis McMichael, goes after his gun. There's a struggle. The gun goes off. And, and, and that's how, and that first shot, according to prosecutors is the fatal shot. That's what they, they argued, uh, during the preliminary hearing that the first shot was the fatal shot. There are three and, you know, he's obviously still up and struggling, but they're going to say it's that first one that was actually the fatal shot. At least that's what they've argued so far in court. Um, but yet it's the way you look at the case. And, And I think that's what will make the difference here. Um, and, and lawyering is going to be extremely important in this case, Ted, because if the defense gets them focused on the two seconds or the prosecution gets them focused on the entire chase, it's like two completely different scenarios we're looking at. Yeah, and it, it, absolutely. And the, the, the key to this case is the how the jury is directed, if you will. If, if, if I'm a juror and I'm of the mindset that this is a self-defense case and I'm just supposed to analyze that. Well, then if you get too close into dissecting the video, you could easily say, you know, you know what, maybe that was self-defense because um, you look at the video. Uh, it's that storytelling that the prosecution is going to have to master and tell here and set it up in a way that puts the jury in a mod Arbery's shoes. Cause the moment you do that, the moment you, put yourself in that young man's shoes, um, it gets real tough to justify the actions of those three men. Absolutely. But again, it comes, it can come down to that moment and you don't know which way it's going to go. And and to me, this is one where lawyers will make a difference because the facts for the most part are almost not in dispute because of the video and everything else. There's the two seconds where there's going to be some arguments back and forth about what exactly is happening. Uh, but from my perspective, it's, it's how does each side marshal the evidence and how do they direct that jury? Now, let's get to the defense of Greg McMichael. This is the father of Travis. His son is the one who is in the struggle with Ahmaud Arbery. He's the one who shoots Ahmaud Arbery. Greg McMichael is in the back of the pickup truck. He is the one who's former law enforcement. Take a listen to his attorney. Your Honor, as you've heard, the warrants against Greg McMichael charge him with aiding and abetting Travis McMichael in the discharging of a fire of a shotgun shooting Ahmaud Arbery. Thus, the question comes down comes down to the intent behind Greg McMichael's actions at the moment the shooting. While we may agree that leaving his home that day with a firearm may not have been a very good idea. For the reasons that he did it, though, he was trying to intercept someone. He had a a thought or feeling, a cut instinct, I think was Agent Dial's word. But we heard, actually, he had some visual evidence to believe this may be a person that's been here before that I want to stop and question or have the police question. And then you get to the issue, right, Ted, of the, we've been talking about this, the citizen's arrest law in Georgia. 
and whether you have a, a right to, as a citizen, to stop someone. You know, I think most agree after this story that it's just, it, it never works out well for anyone. It's not a good idea. Um, but that's not going to be the debate in, in trial. The debate is going to be, did, you know, it, what is the mindset of Greg McMichael? Did he have a, a right to attempt to question him? And is that all he was trying to do that day? So do, do you see this jury taking a look at each defendant differently here? I, I think if the, if the defendant's lawyer, especially Kevin Goff, does a good job of separation, then, then yes. Um, but at the end of the day, if the state gets their way, they'll be looked at as a group, a group that coordinated a chase, a hunt in their neighborhood. And it is such a fascinating case because if you let's just take Roddy Bryant sitting there in his front lawn, he sees his neighbors chasing someone. He has no idea what's going on, but he thinks is a good neighbor. His action should be to help my neighbors. I don't know what's going on, but I know my neighbors and I kind of know my neighbors. I'm going to help them out. And I'm going to videotape this because I want to help them out. In fact, they released that video thinking that the American public would watch it and say, oh, yeah, yeah, that was self-defense. They had no idea the tsunami that they were going to enact by people watching that video and seeing something completely different. The key is, what are jurors going to see? What are jurors that live in this area of the country in South Georgia going to see when they see that video and they hear both arguments. Now, let's take a listen to uh, Kevin Goff, who's the attorney uh, for Roddy Bryan, because he's the third defendant. He is the one, as you said, Ted, that is recording the whole thing. He's alone in his pickup. Mr. Bryan is the one armed with a cell phone, not guns. Mr. Bryan didn't shoot anybody. So, uh, you know, uh, I understand that there are people out there pursuing their own agendas uh, outside of this criminal case uh, for their own reasons. But again, when you confine and look at the actual evidence the jury is going to hear, it's pretty clear that Mr. Bryan is, an, is in a very different position, uh, we would submit, than, than the McMichaels. Uh, and that's not to say that the McMichaels don't have a, a strong defense. We believe they do, and certainly our defense keys in many ways off of theirs. But if you put aside the hype and the spin and you actually sit down and look at the evidence, and the video is just one part of the evidence in this case, then you see that Mr. Bryan has no criminal responsibility in this shooting whatsoever. So there's two things about Roddy Bryan that strike me. Number one, he doesn't have a gun. Okay, so he, he, he is different than the McMichaels in that no gun, but he's got a cell phone and he records the whole thing. And what really gets us into the mind of Roddy Bryan is when police show up and police respond, he tells him, look, guys, I got a video of this and immediately gives the video and shows the video to police. So when you think about consciousness of guilt and what was your intent and what were you doing um, from my perspective, Roddy Bryan has a, a much different argument to make than the McMichaels because one, no gun. Two, he's recording the whole thing, right? I mean, if you're out to commit a crime, you're not going to record it, right? And then as soon as police show up and nobody in the world, including the McMichaels, at that point knew that there was a video of what just happened. The only person on earth who knew at that moment was Roddy Bryan. So if he thought that, oh, we just committed a crime or I was just part of a 
gang that was committing a crime, um, why would he immediately say, hey, I recorded this and, and show it and give it to police? I think those are the strongest arguments that uh, he has in front of this jury when you talk about mens rea, uh, his mindset and, and his intent uh, of everything that he did that day. I think he's in a totally different position than Mike Michaels. He didn't have a gun. He also didn't have the orders of get your gun and let's go. Let's go. He didn't have any of that. He just decided to tag along and record it so that he could then have it uh, memorialized, not knowing what it was going to be. And to argue that Roddy Bryant knowing was um, part of the hunt if you will, of Ahmad Arbery is is a different case. It's different than the McMichaels case. It just is, and it'll be fascinating to see how Kevin Goff negotiates this in the courtroom to try to separate his client from the other two. And uh, finally, Ted, um, I wanted to get to the reaction of these defendants because th we've seen the body cam footage of the defendants after all of this happens, and they are just talking, 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 talking. And when I listen to them, I am, and, and, and it's not about agreeing with them. It's just, as I listen to them, they are convinced they have done nothing wrong. There is, there's nothing coming out of their mouths. I don't see anything in their eyes that tells me, uh-oh, we, we, you know, we just totally messed up here. This was, oh, I can't believe, it. there's none of that. There's no remorse also, which I think is bad, but on the, on the flip side of it, there's no, again, there's no sense of, we're not going to tell you exactly what we believe just happened because we don't think we did anything wrong. And, and I wonder how that plays in front of a jury because some people get really angry about it. Um, but I could see a criminal defense attorney making the argument that that, again, gets into the mindset of these defendants. They did not intend to go out and commit a crime. Certainly didn't go out to intend to commit murder. I don't think anyone can argue that they left their house intending to commit murder. Um, and, and that does play out in their reaction. I think at the end of the day, it helps them because they get to tell their story without taking the witness stand through that body camera video and it's instantaneous i mean the cops are there within minutes and there they are all three of them regurgitating what's on their mind and it's all there for the jury to see i think at the end of the day as disgusted as you might think or, or feel about what happened they aren't trying to hide anything they they don't think they did anything wrong they think it's a horrible horrible um, set of circumstances so you know, when this story first broke, the story was, you know, someone's jogging through the neighborhood and gets chased and shot and killed. And everyone was like, why would you do that? Do you think, Ted, that the the backstory here, how large does the backstory play that we talked about? The fact that um, Ahmaud Arbery was seen on these videos walking through that house and whether they were right or wrong... Uh, about whether or not he was breaking any laws or was committing any crimes in their neighborhood. That's what's on their mind. They're not, they're not chasing someone, a random person. It's a specific person that they were chasing. And, and I'm wondering if, if that changes the, the equation inside the courtroom, right? If it's just 
It was a random African-American person who was jogging through the neighborhood, right? And it's open and shut case. You're chasing him because he's African-American. But here, um, there's an element of that, certainly, because that may be why they suspected uh, that he was committing a crime. But he was the actual person on the videos who was going in and out of this house that they were concerned about for what, what for whether it's right or wrong to be concerned about it. They were. So does does that play at all does that is that a big factor here is will the jury distinguish between those two scenarios of just chasing someone because of the color of their skin versus chasing a specific person uh for specific actions that you saw who also happens to have that color skin yeah i think it's the whole case and i, I think both sides have to embrace it i think the prosecution can't run away from that and make it sound like it's something different because that's the truth in their mind that with the McMichael's mind, that was the truth. They were going to be neighborhood heroes by detaining the individual that was coming through the neighborhood where the racism comes in is subtle and it can be unspoken. Every juror there will figure it out. If that was a white kid, they wouldn't have gone to that length. One might argue. And so the, the, the the prosecution has to be very careful not to say these are this was a hunt for a black person. It has to be they have to say, yes, they were hunting down this individual they thought committed this trespassing. But here's the problem, ladies and gentlemen, you can't do that. You can't get your gun and just hunt people that you think might be part of a trespassing um, the, have a trespassing pattern in your neighborhood. They, they, they absolutely had all of the ingredients for what eventually happened. You don't chase people around with your loaded weapons because guess what? Someone could end up dead. And that's what happened here. This trial begins this month on Court TV. Check our show notes. Uh, we'll have lots of information for you. Ted Rollins will start the day off for you every day. I'll come in. I'm the closer. I'm Mariano Rivera at the end of the day. Uh, Ted is, who are you, Roger Clemens? Who are you starting things off for us every every morning? I thought I was just going to get a base hit right up the middle. There you go. <laughs> I'm playing right. second base, but I got wheels. Well, maybe we'll call you Tom Seaver. <laughs> How about that, Ted? We'll <laughs> do that. Perfect. All right, Ted Rollins, uh, uh, my, my colleague, my friend, um, thank you so much. Appreciate it. When we come back, folks, um, the first time I covered this story, I was like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I, I've heard this story before. I've covered this story before. I've covered this trial before. It was down in Sanford, Florida. It was a case involving someone named George Zimmerman and someone named Trayvon Martin. This, the, the parallels between these two cases are unreal. I will go through all of them and then talk about the one big difference. Next. Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area. This story, this case, this trial is so similar to the George Zimmerman, Trayvon Martin case. It, it's unbelievable. 
It is unbelievable. Let me let me walk you through how similar they are and, and why when this happened and the story broke, I was like, really? Really? Wait, are you serious? Now, the George Zimmerman case um, started the same way this, this case started, as Ted described. Ted was describing that there was a... There was a perception that there was a, a, a crime problem in the neighborhood, right? In the, in the case of the McMichaels, there was this trespasser and someone had stolen a gun out of his truck. And all of a sudden, there's a crime problem in the neighborhood. And there's someone who is responsible. It's that person on that video, okay? George Zimmerman lived in a little subdivision, much like the McMichaels did. His was down in, in Sanford, Florida. And I was in that neighborhood. And there also was a crime problem in George Zimmerman's neighborhood. So in that case, several homes had actually been broken into. Someone had gone into the house and stolen things, okay? So it, with the McMichaels and with George Zimmerman, both um, understand and are fully aware in their own minds that there is a crime problem in my neighborhood, and in both scenarios, George Zimmerman was the self-appointed neighborhood watch. There was no official neighborhood watch in his neighborhood. He was self-appointed, self-anointed, much like the McMichaels here. Because I guess, you know, Greg was a former member of law enforcement and Travis was uh, in the Coast Guard. And they were kind of like uh, the, the, the unofficial uh, neighborhood watch. So they kind of had this mentality. Uh, in both scenarios, and this is unbelievable, um, the first time they spot the person they believe is responsible, George Zimmerman believed he spotted someone who had been breaking into a home, called police and waited for them. And by the time police got there, the suspect was gone. And Zimmerman got really frustrated with that fact. Well, the same thing happened with the McMichaels. They, they, the, um, the suspect, I mean, he's not a suspect, but Ahmaud Arbery was spotted inside that home. They saw him there. They called police. There's 911 calls that corroborate all of this. And Ahmaud Arbery runs away before police get there. Same exact situation. So, so the first time they're trying to apprehend the suspect in the neighborhood that is suffering from this crime wave, uh, they call police, but police, they just can't get it done. They can't get it done by themselves because they get there too late and the suspect flees. So what happens? What happens? Well, in the Ahmad Arbery case, we know exactly what happens. The next time he is spotted, and uh, instead of waiting for police, they take action. And they start following him around the neighborhood in their vehicle. Greg McMichael's on the phone with police as he's following Ahmad Arbery, giving a play-by-play -play, uh, in, in part of it. George Zimmerman did the same exact thing. He sees Trayvon Martin next to his neighbor's house and then starts following him in his car and calls 911 and tells them what they're doing and calls for police to respond. Same exact situation. In both scenarios, both scenarios, Trayvon Martin runs away. I mean, what are you going to do? It's dark. Well, the only, there's a difference here. Ahmaud Arbery's in the middle of the day. Trayvon Martin, it's now getting dark because it's February. Well, it's actually, they're both in February, but, it, but it, it's happening a little bit later at night. But Trayvon Martin runs away from George Zimmerman, runs away, and Zimmerman pursues him. And Zimmerman gets out of the car, 
gets out of the car with a gun. Same thing happens here. Travis McMichael gets out of the pickup, gets out of the pickup with a gun. Same exact scenario. It's, un- it's, it's unbelievable. Then, after, after they get out, they, they're, they're looking, they're looking, Zimmerman's looking for him, and then there is a confrontation. There's a confrontation between Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman. And we know Trayvon Martin ends up getting shot and killed. So Trayvon Martin cannot tell the story to anyone about what happened during that confrontation. The only person who can is George Zimmerman, and he does it on video. Says he's attacked by Trayvon Martin, and Trayvon Martin is going for his gun. What does Travis McMichael say? Same thing. Ahmaud Arbery is the aggressor, comes after him, goes for his gun, and the gun goes off. And he's shot and killed. Now, I mentioned there's one big difference between the two cases. And I've been calling the Ahmaud Arbery early on. I called it, the, it's, George, it's the George Zimmerman case with a video. Because the scenario, the, the parallels are so similar. You've got these self-appointed neighborhood watch folks who are armed. They're armed legally, right? But they are out there and they're not waiting for police. And there's a confrontation. And in both cases, they're claiming self-defense. Well, the jury in the George Zimmerman case focused on that moment. Remember, Ted said, well, where will the jury be focused? Will the jury be focused on just the moment of the confrontation? Or will they be focused on the whole situation? Well, in the George Zimmerman case, they focused just on the confrontation. Because the whole situation, look at it from Trayvon Martin's perspective. I'm walking home from the store to go watch the NBA All-Star game. I'm on the phone with a friend of mine, and I just bought some iced tea and Skittles, and I'm walking home, and there's some guy following me in the car. I run away from the guy, and then the guy gets out and follows me. What am I supposed to do? it's, It's uncanny, but the jury did not consider it from Trayvon Martin's perspective, the whole picture on what was happening. They focused on the confrontation, the physical confrontation. So what will the jury do here? That is a huge question. There is a video. I think the video absolutely helps prosecutors here. And I think it will help prosecutors keep the jury focused on the bigger picture, which is what they need to do. Ted and I agreed on that. Absolutely. It's got to be in the bigger picture because trust me, if you focus on those two seconds, you look, and, and I broke down that video frame by frame. You look at the shadows under the pickup and you look at what's happening, where they are, the way the feet are moving. Travis McMichael is moving backwards away from Ahmad Arbery, which I think there's a, a, a logical um, leap you can make there. It's not even a leap, but a logical conclusion you can make from there that Ahmad Arbery is going after Travis McMichael. Now, if Travis McMichael is pointing his gun at Ahmaud Arbery and Ahmaud Arbery goes after him, um, self-defense is not a defense at that point because pointing a gun at someone is a felony. That's an assault. If his gun is down and not pointed at Ahmaud Arbery, that's not an assault. So that's, that's, a big, that's a big fact, and it's not clear from the video where exactly the gun was, if it was pointed at him or if the gun was pointed at the ground at the time Ahmaud Arbery approaches Travis McMichael. 
out of view of the camera. We just see feet and shadows. So as you, as you watch this trial, and, and, and again, I give this warning before every case, you have no idea, I have no idea, no one has any idea what the 12 jurors are going to do. We don't even know who they are yet. They haven't been chosen. But you don't know where the focus is going to be. The lawyering in this case is going to be crucial. It was crucial in the George Zimmerman case. Uh, Mark O'Mara, the attorney for George Zimmerman, was absolutely brilliant in the way um, he marshaled the evidence and, 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 and where he brought the jury. So we'll see how it all goes. Um, you could check our show notes this week. We have a, a link to a special uh, a documentary. Uh, Ted Rollins uh, produced an amazing documentary that gets you set up and really breaks down all the issues uh, for this trial. It's going to be a huge trial. Gavel to gavel coverage on Court TV. If you don't know where to find Court TV and you have a digital antenna, please rescan it and you will find us and you will be able to watch this case. That's it for this week. I'm Vinny Politan. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great week. And don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.